We all have bucket lists. As a lifelong sports fan, mine is full of tons of different sporting events and venues, from the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and beyond. However, my greatest bucket list item is something I want to share with the world and fans like me. What if you could attend a home college football game for all 130 and counting FBS programs? Seems crazy, right? Join me, your host, Bobby Wilson, as I take you along for the ride to see all the FBS venues and more. This is the TNT College Football Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the very next episode of the TNT College Football Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Wilson. Uh, glad to be back on t- uh, this afternoon. Hope everyone's doing well. Another day closer to the college football season. Right now, it is Sunday, um, August 21st, so we are six days away from the college football season starting. I'm super, super excited for that. Can't wait to get it going. But on today's show, I'm, I'm happy to have uh, Mitch, who runs the Bowling Green Football Talk account, and he has a fantastic blog that we'll get into a little bit on this episode. But Mitch, thanks for joining me. Bobby, thanks for having me. Love the content, love the pod. Super stoked to be here. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. And Well, go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. All right, so I mean, I won't go too into the personals of me because I like to keep the account mostly focused on, you know, football and stuff. But basically, uh, so I'm from New England, and I wasn't a huge college football fan growing up. Like, I was way more into the NFL. Um, and then, actually, how I got into Bowling Green to even start was obviously the matching being mm-hmm. on the weekdays. You know, me and my brothers would love just watching any sort of football in high school. And you know, Tuesday night action was always something that was just on when there wasn't a lot of better viewing options. And so that's when I kind of got the first taste of Bowling Green. And there were some guys like Jordan Lynch and Chandler Harness playing for NIU. Mm-hmm. And so the Mac was getting a lot of buzz back in like the early 2010s. And so that was kind of my first taste into like the world of action in college football. That's awesome. And and I live in Mac country. I live in central Illinois. I live only about an hour and a half from northern Illinois campus. So, I mean, and I grew up in Michigan. So the Maction has always been a big part of for me, too, just because, I mean, when you live here, you're a part of it. But then, like you said, on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, that's what's on and you look forward to it. Yep, 100%. <clears throat> so you said you're from New England. Obviously, you're a I would have to imagine you're a big Patriots fan then. Yeah, huge. <laughs> that would make sense why the NFL was more important to you than college football was, just because you were so used to winning. <laughs> yeah, and uh, my dad, he got uh, season tickets to the Patriots in the early 90s, so even before Robert Kraft bought the team. And so, I mean, I've been blessed to just go to like a billion games growing up. That's amazing. That's so cool. I, I, I grew up... I'm like I said, I'm from Michigan, so I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and I actually grew up going to Detroit Lions games. I'm a Detroit, diehard Detroit Lions fan. It's it's a curse, but it is what it is. But yeah. <laughs> but it, it's uh, same type of situation then as you there. I mean, it's just just a, a fantastic experience doing that. Oh yeah, it's it's really nice going to the games. But I will say, I mean, once I got to college, I I gotta say I like going to college games a lot better. 100%. And you kind of briefly went into what, what got you into Bowling Green football, but can you kind of go into it a little bit more maybe? Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, so growing up in New England, 
you know, people are surprised if I've ever even heard of Bowling Green. Um, but the story goes that, I mean, me and my brothers loved playing the NCAA football games back on the Xbox and the PS2. And when we were in high school, my twin brother uh, just randomly picked a team. He's like, all right, I'm going to start a season in NCAA football. I'm going to randomly pick a team, and we'll, I'll just play with them. And he just happened to pick Bowling Green. And so he was playing with them, playing with them. A few seasons go by. And then, you know, it was college application time. So we just decided to send some over to Bowling Green. Ended up touring it and just absolutely fell in love with the campus. And then once I got to Bowling Green, we both went there. Um, just still being big football fans, we never missed a game. I mean, Bowling Green was horrendous for the four years that I was in college. But we still just never missed a game because we just love football and, and love our school. That that is an amazing story, though, for for it to come about because of the college football video game. That I I love that. Yeah, people people do love that story. That's awesome, and I'm so excited that that's coming back. That's a whole other thing, though. But it, I used to do the same type of thing. I would just pick a mo- the, a random team that I could think of, just close my eyes and scroll through, and whatever team I landed on, that's what I went with, and it was the same type of situation. So I, I love that. That I love hearing that. Yeah, and, you know, once we went and toured it, uh, anyone who hasn't been to Bowling Green, it's truly a college town. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got – the campus is nice and compact, so, you know, you don't have a super far walk from, like, the bars back to, like, your dorm room. And it's just a town that truly revolves around the college. So it's just a really nice feel and nice place to go to school. That's great. I, I've i only driven <clears throat> driven through it. I've never – I've never stopped. It's it's obviously on my list for one of the places that I need to go to. And being where I live, it'll probably be one of the places I go to pretty soon because it's not a terribly far drive for me. But uh, I've I always enjoyed driving driving past uh, Doit Perry Stadium because it's just right there and you can see it and everything. Yeah, and it's a nice stadium, and I like that it's open to the students. So you know, me and my buddies and some of my fraternity brothers, like we would just go play touch football on the doy just, you know, whenever we wanted to, as long as it wasn't like practice or anything going on, we were allowed to just go around and toss the ball. That's cool. That's a really cool experience then that you're able to do that. I, I, I like that. I went to Grand Valley State University in Michigan and it was the same type of situation as well where <clears throat> students or other athletes or whatnot uh, could go, could go and just do something like that as well. Yeah, it is really fun. It just kind of makes you feel more connected. And it's, I think it's part of what has made me become such a big fan because, you know, being a season ticket holder to the Patriots for, you know, a long time now, you're still just kind of whatever. You're just another number. But it's like, hey, I've eaten in the dining hall next to, you know, Scott Miller, future mm-hmm. NFL player. And I've eaten, you know, I'm in the same accounting class as like three of the players. So it's like you just feel a lot more connected to the team and the players. Absolutely. <clears throat> you, you kind of said the mid two thousands is when you went to Bowling Green, correct? No, I went to Bowling Green or recently. mid twenty tens. Yeah, yep, yep. My bad. <laughs> yeah, twenty sixteen to twenty nineteen were the football seasons that I was a student for. Gotcha, gotcha. So, <clears throat> what kind of brief history can you give me on the program? All right. So, I mean, the history it's got its ups and downs. Um, we can start just briefly. I won't spend too much time on any one thing. Um, Gary Blackney takes over the program in 91. He wins back-to-back MAC championships and goes to back-to-back bowl games. 
in 91 and 92. And then the program just kind of, you know, the consequences of success, as uh, a lot of people will put it, where you just kind of start resting on your laurels. And the programs kind of started, you know, taking a dive. And then in 2000, they went two and nine. And that's when the administration was like, all right, you know, this has been going on long enough. We need a change in the culture. We need a change in the attitude. And that's when they brought in Urban Meyer. So mm-hmm. Urban Meyer then comes in in 01 and 02 with the two seasons he was there. And, I mean, I can spend a little bit more time talking about him because, you know, obviously he's one of the greatest college football coaches to ever coach. Absolutely. And the fact that his first head coaching gig was at Bowling Green was, you know, obviously it's just a really cool thing in history. You know, the, I think the coolest thing about the BG Toledo rivalry is the fact that, you know, arguably two of the greatest coaches had their first gigs in the rivalry because Nick Saban's first head coaching job was yep. at Toledo yep. and Urban's was at Bowling Green. Absolutely. And, and like you're saying, I mean, there's not too many schools that can say that. No, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy that that's kind of where they got their start. And so kind of going into the Meyer stuff a little bit more, he comes in fresh off a two and nine season that BG just had the last year for Blackney. And it, it was not like a home run hire in anyone's eyes. He was never a coordinator. He was just the wide receivers coach at Notre Dame. And so he comes in, the athletic director is like, all right, this is our guy. He's got the energy. You know, let's just bet on this like 36 year old kid. I mean, that's, you're just a kid in the right. coaching world, like at 36 years old. And he had a vision of what he wanted Bowling Green to be, and he executed it. And I think what kind of gets him in trouble nowadays, it, it worked 20 years ago. Like that militant dictator style, um, it wasn't as controversial back then. Right. And he actually got 21 kids to quit. And not, not a transfer. Like 21 kids were just like, we just would rather not play football than be coached by this dude. Because he would run them and work them out so hard that he started having vomit cans, is what he called them, where he would just put trash cans in the field house where if you had to puke, go use the vomit can. Because he would just work these guys out so hard. And because he just wanted to change the vision. I think another cool story about the Urban Meyer era, because um, I'm kind of a history nerd, so when I really got into Bowling Green football, I obviously like looked up a lot of stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he gets there, and the kids are just working out in, like, whatever clothes. Like, they just got sweatpants, tank tops, or whatever they got on. And he wanted them to them to have a better sense of being a team. And so he called up Adidas, and he's like, can, can we get something? Like, we got, like, because that's who was Notre Dame's apparel at the time. So we right. had good connections there. And he's like, we, can you just send us, like, some workout clothes? Like, I want some Bowling Green stuff here. Like, these kids got nothing. And so they're like, all right, yeah, we got you. And so they send them stuff. And he brings the box to the team, and he opens it up, and they're blue and white. Oh. So they got the team colors totally wrong. And he's just looking at them like, oh, gosh, like, what did I just do? Like, I just totally messed this up. And one thing that spoke to him so greatly was that the players were just ecstatic. They were so thankful. Like, they did not have team workout stuff before. They didn't care that they got the colors wrong. They didn't care that it was blue and white. Like, they were just stoked to have stuff to represent the school and to work out in and be more of a team. And so that's when he kind of started being like, all right, like I'm buying, they're buying into me just as much as I'm buying into them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then his first game comes around at the time they were in the big 12, it was against Missouri. 
and you know he he says he woke up the night before the game just like knowing that they would win and they did they won 20 to 13 over a, a power five team that had just blown the doors off of them like two years earlier and they ended up going eight and three after being two and nine the year before with only 55 players on the team that's amazing to, for one to do it with 55 players is is in itself is insane but to go from two and nine to eight and three that turnaround is just fantastic and it speaks to the, the type of coach that he was but then that the great story you just shared about the workout equipment i mean just for a team to buy in that much is everything you can ask for as a coach and i can speak as a former coach about that and it, it's everything it's what you want yeah, I mean, I, culture, that's really the name of the game. And you like you know as well as anyone coaching, like when you have kids, like these, these are not 30-year-old professionals who have $10 million driving them to be the best they can be. These are 19-year-old kids that like need guidance and like a father figure, some mm-hmm. of them. And there are plenty of stories of like, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but there was a safety who was just like a special teams player. He wasn't even a starter. And he was really struggling in his math class. And Urban personally helped him do his math homework. He would have him come over to his house and do his math homework with him and, like, tutor him a little bit because he just and, – and you can read about this in countless interviews and articles. Like, Urban's wife, Shelly, she'll say it too. Like, that – especially the 14 seniors on that one team, but the whole team in general, they would always have over for dinner, for barbecues, for bonding events. And especially back then with no social media, no cameras, like – Urban was able to just implement his culture, and the kids bought in, he bought in, and he really looks at those kids so fondly like they're his own because they they didn't have to buy into him. He was some 36-year-old mm-hmm. nobody who had never even been a coordinator, and they just kind of fell in love with the kids, and the kids fell in love with Urban and his wife, and it was just kind of one big family. And, you know, they were just – I think the statistic was – from like 99 to 2000, they were like 0-4 against BCS teams. The Power 5 is, they're called now. Mm-hmm. And then in Urban's first year, he upsets Northwestern from the Big 10 and Missouri from the Big 12. Which is, I mean, obviously that's a game changer for not only him and the trajectory of his career, but for the program's sake. Oh, yeah. I mean, because talk and culture and workouts, like that stuff's great but you need the wins on the field to reaffirm everything in, in people's minds and reaffirm the vision. And, you know, that's, you're right. That's what ultimately led him to get the Utah job. And which I, I listen, he was only there for two years. It is what it is. That's the name of the game in this business. Like, right. We'll talk about him in a second, but Dino Babers, he was also only here for two years. Like he, I, I don't get mad at people for moving on. Right. Like I'll, I'll never be that guy. If Leffler, wins the match championship next year and bolts for whatever new job he wants, I'll never complain a day. Like, er, there have been, Urban has even said in articles I've read where, um, I'm trying to remember what, it might have been Blackney, I think, that told him it, because he got let go in, in 2000, and he had passed up on job offers after winning back-to-back MAC titles, and he told Urban, like, listen, get out while the getting is good, or you're going to get shown the door eventually, because there's not many Frank Soliches at Ohio. There's right. not many guys who stay in the MAC for 20 years. Like, you got to go when your stock is at its highest mm-hmm. or else you're just going to get fired eventually. Absolutely. that That's the name of the game, especially, especially like you said, I mean, in the MAC, It's just 
it's <clears throat> it's not normal, like you said. I mean, it, it's you gotta you gotta strike while you can. You do, and then obviously it's up to the school to then capitalize on the success that you brought it and move on. And and BG ended up moving on with Greg Brandon comes in next. He was the offensive coordinator. He was running the spread stuff mm-hmm. um, that was innovative. Like Urban Meyer spread offense was very innovative in right. the early two thousands, and Brandon kept it going. And that 03 season was incredibly special for Bowling Green. Uh, you know, they ended up getting to the Motor City Bowl and having another big win over Northwestern. And they were also the first program to get a college game day when we mm-hmm. hosted Northern Illinois. Uh, both ranked teams, game days there. Uh, the full game's on YouTube somewhere if anyone wants to go check it out. It was a really good game. Uh, PJ Fleck was actually on that Northern Illinois game. That's right. Which is kind of funny. <laughs> That's and so a lot of success in that 03 season but then just as can happen with other coaches and like I'm not going to say Greg Brandon's a bad coach because the dude you know I was just rattling off all the successes he had but you know it was a lot of Urban's guys and uh, the, the team just kind of started to tail off a little bit you know then they went 6-5 and five the next season 4-8 and eight the season after that um you know, eight and five, a little bounce back in 07, but then they went six and six and 08. And then that's when Dave Clawson eventually entered in 09. And I know I'm rambling, so feel free to butt in at any time. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Like the, obviously Dave Clawson has a pedigree at the P five level as well. So can you kind of speak to him a little bit? Yeah. So Leffler actually brings up Clawson's name a lot, which makes sense because uh, Coach Clawson, he rebuilt Richmond and Fordham, which mm-hmm. were our SCS schools, for people that might not know. Um, you know, took them from the dumpster to be something really special. And he was kind of brought in to do a similar thing at Bowling Green, even though a lot of fans didn't see it at first because he, he goes, I want to say 7-5. and five in his, Yeah, 7-5 and five in his first season, loses in the bowl game, so 7-6. and six. But then they plummet all the way to 2-10. and 10. And that's kind of because... You know, when Clawson came here, he didn't see a culture that he liked. So he kind of had to, you know, he had enough talent to do some some wins and get to a bowl game that first year. But he really wanted to rebuild the team in his image and kind of fix the lackadaisical culture that, unfortunately, uh, Greg Brandon kind of let set in. Mm-hmm. So they go 2-10 and 10 in 2010, then 5-7 and seven the next year, 8-5 and five in 2012, and then in, obviously, 2013, they end up winning the MAC championship over the heavily favored Jordan Lynch and IU Huskies. Right, and he he kind of completed that five year rebuild that Leffler is also kind of trying to emulate. And Clawson again, I spoke with uh, former uh, BG quarterback James Kanaki, uh like last year, I think in the off season, just kind of about his time at BG. And he had nothing but great things to say about Coach Clawson, uh, the type of man he is, the type of uh, expectations he holds for his players, and you're seeing it in the Wake Forest. I mean, they just played in the ACC championship game, right. and that's a school that I mean, they were in the dumpster of the ACC for years before he got there. Absolutely, <clears throat> he's done an amazing job there. I mean, like you said, they played in the ACC title game last year, and he he's such a great culture coach. I mean, I, I know culture is like a buzzword and everything, but what he's done at Wake Forest, like you said, going from a complete the complete bottom of the ACC to now being one of the top teams is just speaks to how well of a job he's done. 
Exactly. And that's what he did at Bowling Green. I mm-hmm. mean, two and ten a second year to the class of the MAC. And then, again, uh, I what I hoped would happen for him happened. He gets a better job and ends up to Bowling Green to bring in somebody else who can keep the success going. And they went with Dino Babers, who was cutting his teeth at, was it Eastern Washington? No, Eastern it was, Illinois. It was wherever Jimmy Garoppolo was. Eastern Illinois. Yeah, Eastern Illinois. Um, so that's where he was having a lot of success there. He comes to Bowling Green. They have a fine year. You know, they went like seven and five uh, his first year. They win the Camellia Bowl. So it was a good first year for the Bader's staff. And they're running that like Art Bryles Baylor offense where it's mm-hmm. no huddle. You're, you know, it's technically run first, but it's all about tempo and keeping teams off balance. And then in his second year, they win the MAC championship over NIU, uh, kind of a blowout. I don't know if you remember, but NIU was on like their walk-on freshman quarterback in the yep. championship game, Tommy yep. Fiedler. Yep, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of a slacking, and you know, but still a great win, a great season. I mean, they put up a billion points with Matt Johnson and Roger Lewis and Gary Dieter and those guys. And but then again, as what happens, Babers wins the MAC championship. He heads over to Syracuse, and then that's kind of when you enter the tailspin mm-hmm. of Bowling Green football. We start to head towards the bottom. And and how is how has that been as a fan? I mean, I know obviously it's I can speak to be, being a diehard Detroit Lions fan. It, it is difficult to cheer for your team when they're losing, but at the same time, you have a passion and love for your team still. So how how, how is it for you then being a fan? Yeah, so. Like, I wasn't even a huge fan during the Clawson and Babers years. Like I said, my BG fandom really got going when I went to school, which unfortunately was Jinx's first year. Um, but for me, it's not an issue. Um, like I said, I'm not trying to say, like, I'm some great fan and I'm the role model for other people. But, like, I don't really care about wins and losses as much. Like, I want to win. But it's like, yeah, as crazy as it sounds, cause it's kind of a leap. But it's like, you don't break up with your girlfriend just because she gets sick or you don't divorce your wife just because you run into like some financial issues like being a fan of a bad team just makes you feel even closer to them because while like the fair weather people are bailing and they're not going to the games and there's only you know 20 kids in the student section on a rainy tuesday night like it just makes me feel like even more of a fan like i i have no problem going to see bad football I 100% agree with that because that, that's me in a nutshell too with my team. And yeah, it, 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 and then it just means more when you do win. Exactly. Like if, if Bowling Green can get back to a bowl game soon or win the Mac, like, you know, you can be happy and everyone can cheer, but there's not many people out there that can be like, you know what? I was at that pouring down rain, 60 point drubbing against middle Tennessee where, you know, you're just losing faith in humanity. Yep. You're getting beat so bad. Like, and and the Jinx hire was just ridiculous. I don't know if you've heard the rumors, but the rumor has it was the AD at the time uh, just was enamored by Texas Tech and the Pat Mahomes, Cliff Kingberry offense, and he wanted to kind of keep what Dino Babers was doing with the high-tempo stuff and the air raid. So he literally just called up Texas Tech and was like, hey, which of your assistants can I afford with this number? And they were like, I don't know, you guess you could have the running backs coach. And so he offers the job to Mike Jinks, who did not have a list of coordinators ready to hire, did not have a vision for the program, 
And I don't blame Mike Jinks at all. If someone came to me and said, hey, Mitch, I know you've only been a, a software developer for two years now, but do you want to be the, the chief information officer for, you know, Google? I'd be like, yeah, sure. I don't care if I, like, have no plan. Like, I, who gets this job off? Her right, like, right. <laughs> so you're not going to say no if that call comes. And so he takes the job, having never stepped foot in Ohio. He doesn't hire any coordinators with any experience. The defensive coordinator was a first-time coordinator. The co-offensive coordinators were first-time offensive coordinators. So as you'd expect, he takes a team that comes off the MAC championship with a ton of a very experienced offensive line. I talked about this with James, too. He kind of filled me in where it's like, hey, you have the most experienced offensive line in the MAC conference. And instead of trying to run the ball, what do you do? You try to run an air rate system that you just don't have the talent to do. And the team goes 4-8, and eight, and Jinx is recruiting good kids because he's coming from Texas. But, I mean, as you know, that Midwest weather isn't always the friendliest right. for people who <clears throat> aren't used to it. And when you bring in a lot of Texas boys who, you know, all their friends are back home, all their family's back home, and then you're going 2-10 and 10 in the MAC, like, you're not going to stay. You're just going to transfer. Right. And so that kind of started the, the tailspin. And I've talked to other players, too, who said Jinx was basically a joke. Like, he commanded no respect from the kids, and they kind of did not think he was fit to lead, and they didn't really give him the respect that he was trying to command. And so then the team goes, you know, 4 and 8 the first year, 2 and 10 the second year, losing to an SCS team. And then in the third year, after blowing a huge homecoming lead against Western Michigan, the athletic director, thankfully, you know, sends them off, cuts ties. And then Carl Pellini, their interim coach, goes two and three in the final five games. And he rattles off like half the number of FBS, FBS wins Jinx had in only five games. So, you know, that kind of spoke for itself there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's never a good situation there. No. And I, I love Carl Pellini. I mean, I thought the job he did as an interim coach for, you know, a lot of people don't consider interim coaches part of like the legacy of coaching at their school because they maybe did like a bowl game when a guy bowls for a better job. But, I mean, he coached for five games, so basically half the season. So I, I loved going to, uh, like, see all the things that Carl Pellini was doing and, and all the buy-in he was getting from those guys in a pretty bad situation. Absolutely. And now you're on to Scott LaFleur. And, and what, what do you think – what do you think he needs to do to get the to get things rolling again? I mean, you guys won at Minnesota last year, so you had a great win there. You're coming off a four and eight season. Uh, you got some some talent coming back, especially at quarterback, and a lot of you got a lot of new faces still. But what do you think he what do you think he's got to do to get it rolling again? So I think he's just got to stay the course. Like I I see it, and mm -hmm. I think as someone who's like very dialed into the team and actually does have a little bit of a relationship with Coach Leffler. Like, I, I see it, and I see it going correctly, and even ahead of schedule, believe it or not. Um, because, so when Leffler comes in, so he's, I think that's like 7-22 and 22 right now is his record as a coach. And Jinx was like 7-24. and 24. And so you look at that as an outsider, and you're like, all right, he's not doing much better. Mm -hmm. But then if you actually dive in, it's like, all right, he comes in in 2019. He has two scholarship quarterbacks. There's an FBS team with two scholarship quarterbacks in – Grant Loy, who's a former walk-on and eventually transferred to Auburn, and Darius Wade, a guy he pulled from Boston College who was working at Home Depot, and Leffler called and was like, hey, do you want to get like a graduate degree and use that last year of eligibility? Like, 
And he's like, sure. And Wade is a great kid. I mean, he's such a good teammate, leader. And so he comes, and you're already not working with a lot. Mm-hmm. And he's still able to get three wins miraculously. One of them against Toledo is 30-point underdogs. First time beating Toledo in a decade. I was there storming the field with my friends and my girlfriend. Like, it was just an amazing day. Um, and so that, like, believe it or not, 3-9 and nine was quite miraculous for what that team had roster-wise. You know, no offense to the kid there or anything. But, um, and also just speaking to Leffler, like, I actually have a, kind of a funny story where uh, he wanted to come to our fraternity. One of our guys got him to come to our fraternity house and just kind of talk to us about, like, culture, leadership, being a man, like, what it means to be, like, a leader, and not just on the field, but, like, in the, your community and your family and stuff like that. And I actually had a, a date planned for that night. I totally forgot that there was a conflict. And it was a date with my ex-girlfriend, and we were, like, about to get back together, and it was, like, a whole big thing, and I totally blew her off. I was like, I'm dying to meet Coach Leffler, like, that and uh, our relationship never recovered from the, me blowing her off. But it was totally worth it because Leffler had me ready to run through a wall. He was just so charismatic. Like, everything he said, you're like, yes. Like, I can climb Mount Everest. Like, let's do it. And so that's why I can see kind of, like, what he's doing. And then you go to 2020, and it's like, all right, they get blown out by 100 to everyone they're playing. It's the most pathetic display of football you've ever seen. But, again – the youngest team in the entire country. Right. 131 teams. They're number one in terms of the youngest. And that was the same case in 2021. Still 130 teams, still the youngest in all of college football, and you still rattled off four wins, one of which, like you mentioned, a huge upset at Minnesota on their homecoming. And, again, no disrespect to any of the players, but you're starting two walk-on freshmen. Right. Or underclassmen. One of them was like a redshirt freshman, the other was a true freshman in Kay Zimmerly. And credit to those kids for stepping up to the plate, but like that should never happen. You right. should never in the history of college football have a situation in the MAC where you're starting to walk on freshmen. Like this is a developmental league. You don't have freshmen come in who are five stars and four stars and can start right away and actually be good. Like these kids need to get developed at this level. And so again, to pull off even four wins with the issues on the roster that they were facing was, in my opinion, a really underrated coaching job he did last year. I agree with you. I just doing a little doing research on the team and everything. I mean, like you said, this was the youngest team in college football the past two years. So it's and it's amazing the fact that, like you said, they were able to win four games last year with the youth that they had, starting walk-ons and. One of those wins being in a, at a Big Ten foe, I mean, just an amazing job, really. Yeah, 100%. And, again, like you said, you're more dialed in than a lot of casuals. But a casual fan will look at it and be like, oh, four and eight, like, you know, I guess that's okay. But, you know, when you dig behind the surface, you kind of see. And that inconsistency showed. Like, right, that's a team right. that beat Minnesota. You really just bullied them. I mean, a 14 to 10 win, you just bullied them. Absolutely. And then you get – you know, shellacked by Akron two weeks later. Like that's, and Leffler's even brought that up. That's what young teams do. Young teams can beat anyone and they can absolutely lose to anyone. 100%. And I've been on the both, both sides of that myself as a coach. So I, there is absolute truth to that. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so I think that's again, when, and I know you mentioned this and it's, it's a pretty big number, but you bring in about 17 transfers and it's like, we just got to keep getting older. 
Like, we right. just need guys to come in and just not be 18. Yes. You can't win in the MAC with 18-year-olds. <clears throat> that is the truth right there. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second because that, that, that is, an, is an amazing number, a staggering number. Uh, but first, what are your realistic expectations for this season? So, realistically, I like to set win expectations in, like, a two-range window. Or, I guess, technically three. Because I don't like when, like, some of the sidelines accounts, no offense to them, but they'll be like, oh, the range for this team is either 2-10 and 10 or 8-4. and four. Right, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. That's, like, 90% of the possibilities right there. Uh, so, right. for me, I would say 5-7 and seven is the floor, 7-5 and five is the ceiling. Because when you look at the schedule... It's like, all right, UCLA and Mississippi State, you're probably not pulling off the Minnesota Magic again. Those are almost two guaranteed L's. Right. If we're just like, you know, based on what's going to happen more likely than not, you're going to beat your FCS team. And then what's brutal about this year is getting Marshall. Like, that is a quality. Right, absolutely. Yeah, as you know, doing your prep, like, Marshall's good. It's hard for me to envision Bowling Green winning that game. It's at home on homecoming, which like hopefully can give them a little edge. But I think you're looking at one and three in the non-con. So if you wanted to get to a bowl game, you'd have to go five and three in that play. And the thing that the thing that sets up well for you guys is being in the East. So that does help. Oh yeah, definitely. The East, unfortunately, has been down the last few years compared to the West. But you know, I'll take it. Right. Absolutely. I mean. Last year, everybody in the West made a bowl game. So I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a gauntlet on that side. I mean, it's it's no disrespect to the East at all because I mean, there's quality teams and quality programs there, and, and it goes in cycles. I mean, there's been cycles where the East is far better than the West. There's cycles where they're both pretty even. I mean, it just it just go. That's what happens when you're in the MAC and you lose coaches frequently and players transfer and all this and that. It's just part of it. Exactly. I mean, you know as well as anyone, parity is the name of the game in this conference. I mean, six straight years, six different champions. Mm-hmm. No other league has that kind of parity. Absolutely. And it very well could happen again this year. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. What What are your thoughts on quarterback Mac McDonald? I, I think he's a lot better than people give him credit for uh, from a national perspective. I mean, maybe nationally people don't really talk too much about this this group of Mac quarterbacks for this year. But I mean, there's a, there, I think the top three or four guys are actually pretty decent. Yeah. I, so the Mac's got some good quarterback play. Um, from my thoughts on McDonald, again, you got to dive past the numbers, 12 touchdowns to seven picks. Not awesome. I mean, in 2021, especially it's not like eye popping, mm-hmm. but this is a kid who, again, you have two walk on freshmen blocking for you like that's that's not a recipe for doing well i mean right. in the games he actually got protection like buffalo and ohio he balled out and the games he doesn't like eastern michigan and miami and toledo he gets killed and it's like the the more dialed in fans again i'm not trying to just disrespect like casual fans but like some people don't stop to think like hey what if we put like cj stroud behind new mexico state's offensive line like, right do you think he'd win a heisman because I would guess probably not. That's a great point. I mean, you're only you're you're only as good as your offensive line. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's most fans understand that the trenches kind of set the tone for your game. And if you look at Bowling Green's numbers, like 
they couldn't run the ball. And the thing I love most about Lesler is he he speaks very honestly with the media. Like he's like, hey, can you guys see that we don't run the ball? Like we can't <laughs> because we just can't block well enough to run the ball. So it's like when every team just gets to sit there in like cover three mm-hmm. because they know you're not going to run the football, it gets real difficult to have an effective passing game. And that's where, hey, we can beef up the offensive line. And especially, like, I'm not a huge fan of the type of offense that Leffler likes to run, but if you get the correct lineman in, it can be very effective, which is kind of more that pro style. We're going to beat you up on the front. We're going to run the ball down your throat. And then when you bail out to stop the run, we're just going to do play action and bomb it 50 yards over your head. And, and it looks like they might be able to do that possibly this year by getting seven, at least seven offensive linemen in the transfer portal, which is a number I've personally have never seen before. And, and, and I've, I would like to say I've dove pretty deep into it, but I mean, to get seven new faces uh, via the transfer portal and then probably some new true freshmen as well. I, I don't know that number, but just amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's, it's new. I mean, the college football transfer rules only kicked in like the COVID sparked it. And then it just kind of stayed. And with all the movement, I think that number is going to become less staggering Mm -hmm. as we kind of move forward in like the new era of college football. But you nailed it. I mean, there's seven new linemen coming in from a wide range of schools like Cincinnati, coastal Carolina, um, Florida, A&M, Jacksonville, or not Jacksonville, Jackson state, um, Rutgers, like, a bunch of different schools are pulling kids from. And I just think that's going to be the new norm. Like, right. I, I, and I respect that. Like, yes, we're still recruiting kids, and that's important. But BG only pulled in, I think, 11 or 12 high school recruits this year. And I have no problem with that. Again, no disrespect to anyone who signs with the MAC out of high school. But the chances of us pulling a kid who may be committed to UCF or Cincinnati or Ohio State even, like, there's just more of a ceiling there. If a kid's the backup left tackle at Ohio State and the guy in front of him, you know, maybe they're even the same class. You got two kids in the same recruiting class in the same, let's say they're both centers, like Jakari Robinson coming in from Cincinnati. He transferred to Memphis for one year. Um, and then, but he was a starting center on Cincinnati when they won the American Championship in, I believe, 2019. And then, unfortunately, he gets beat out. And that's not saying he's a bad player. They just are an elite I mean, elite group of five teams. Right. And so why not take a kid from there or a kid from Michigan or a kid from Nebraska who had a higher ceiling than maybe recruiting a two-star kid out of high school? Like, it just makes sense, I think, to utilize the transfer portal if it's going to be here. And I love what Leffler has done. And the offensive line may have three to four new starters than it did last year. The other thing, too, with that uh, from from a coach's perspective is you kind of get – you kind of get some guys that are seasoned a little bit that have played and you kind of more so know what you're getting. You can, you can mold the high school player into what you potentially want him to be. But with the transfer, you're getting a guy who, who has been there and played and done it. So you can plug him in hopefully. Yeah. And that's the goal. And again, I'll point to Jakari because he is going to be like a leader on this Mm -hmm. team, but he's won the American championship at Cincinnati a school that, you know, just put out like nine kids to the NFL from right. the five, just made the playoffs. They're moving now to the Big 12. Like, that's a program where it's like, hey, if you can sprinkle some of that magic over here in Northwest Ohio, we will gladly take it. 
So you pull in a kid like that, and you don't have to wait four years, three years, two years for him to get bigger. And again, you got to bring in high school talent because that's always going to be the lifeline of right, right. college football. But you bring in a true freshman. I mean, that kid was just at prom nine months ago. Right. And Jakari is a man. Like, he's a husband, and he's like 23, 22, and he can bench press a thousand times whatever some high school kid coming in can bench press. Right. So with the game experience and the age, it just makes sense that if you can put some duct tape over the holes. And, and Leffler made it clear he wasn't going to do that early. He was going to come in and recruit, recruit, recruit. And then after he felt like he's established a good enough culture, then he'll come in and plug in the holes. Do you think it's safe to say that he will probably be the best player on offense this year? Definitely on the offensive line. It's mm-hmm. hard to say on offense because I do think McDonald could have a good year. Right. I think this wide receiver room is the best one Green's had since the match championship winning days easily where – you have returning from last year, you have Austin Osborne, who led the team in receptions and was a former four-star Washington player who then transfers in Matt McDonald's uh, former high school That's right. Teammate. That's right, yeah. You have uh, Christian Sims, who is a beast tight end. You have um, even some of the lower guys, like Kavon Kroom is a great blocker. He does some great things uh, on the outside. You have Tyrone Broden, who he if he puts on some weight, he could play in the NFL. Like, that is a kid who is big, he is strong, and he has all the intangibles to break out of a school like BG and go to the league. And then you bring in FCS All-American O.J. Hilaire. You still bring back uh, – who am I blanking on in the wide receiver room? Gosh, I'm, I'm missing somebody, and I'm going to feel bad in 10 minutes. Um, but you also bring in Boston College grad transfer C.J. Lewis. I mean, that's a kid who – I'd like to think if you can torch Clemson's defense, you could probably torch Toledo's or someone else in the Mac. So right. I think there's a lot to like about the wide receiver room this year. I agree with you. And, I mean, the, the pieces are there. And, like you said, uh, Coach has done a great job recruiting and filling in where he's needed to in the transfer portal. And two more questions before we're done. We've talked about the offensive line a ton. I'm big on you win in the trenches. What do you think about the defensive line? Yeah, so the defensive line should be good as well. You have, obviously, Carl Brooks coming back. He's a stud. Um, you have guys like Billy Roberts coming back. Uh, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Hardeman. Uh, he's like more of an edge slash like linebacker type player. Um, and then Walter Hare. He's actually the oldest player on the team. Him and Mason Lawler were freshmen in 2017 under Jinx. And because of COVID, and like redshirting, obviously they're now like super seniors. Mm-hmm. So uh, big wall, he should be a menace on the D-line. And I do think that you could see BG, I, I'm a little foreshadowing, I'll probably be betting a lot of unders in Bowling Green games this year because that D-line is going to be nasty. And like I said, I, in my personal opinion, I think that's where you win games. You win games on the offensive line and the defensive line. And you guys look like you're going to have a good defensive line, and then if that offensive line improves, I mean, I think that really sets you guys up for the potential of that 7-5 and five ceiling that you talked about. Yeah, that's that's where these games are won. And like you said, especially in the MAC, where you just don't – you don't see – I know there's a lot of good quarterbacks. Like you had Dustin Crum last year. Rocky Lombardi's solid. Brett mm-hmm. Gabbert should be good. But you don't have C.J. Stroud. You don't have – 
you know, Bryce Young. In this league, you win the game in the trenches. And if BG, I think Leffler's ideal vision of a football game, like a lot of old school, like blue collar coaches, is play great defense, run the football, and you'll outpossess the team and you'll just crush them. Like, if you look back at BG's last game of last season against Ohio, not that you want to limit your offense in any way, but that 21 to 10 win, that fits kind of right in with the vision left of wants of turning the clock, not turn the ball over, mm-hmm. and then just kind of like a python, just kind of squeeze the other team. And that's that's kind of what you got to do, especially in November in the MAC. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it gets cold. Yes. The hands are hurting. You just got to run the football and just crush the other team's spirit. As a guy who goes to games frequently, that's that's one of the points of my podcast. When I go and sit at these stadiums in the MAC in November, sometimes I question my life choices. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I love watching the games from, you know, Scottsdale. I'm in a T-shirt, tank top, my flip-flops. And I love that it's football cold because I know that the players are feeling it. Mm-hmm. But I'm also just happy watching it from my living room or outside <laughs> next to the pool. I can only imagine. That's got to be pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Well, one last thing before we conclude. Uh, the thing that got me uh, like connected with you and everything is your blog. So go ahead and tell the listeners about that. You, you do a great job on there. Thank you. Uh, you know, I wish I've been doing more lately, especially as the season ramps up. But, um, you know, I'm working full time and I'm getting my graduate a graduate degree um, so I had been logging a lot of hours just working and studying, but, you know, I just decided it was during COVID actually, um, me and my girlfriend at the time, like we were just like, you know, looking for stuff to do with everyone else was in COVID. So I just started a blog about Bowling Green. Didn't really think much of it, but you know, now I have like 800 followers. I like to just kind of stay in tune because I know that, you know, when I was a student, there just wasn't a lot of coverage. Like the blade does a fine job. Okay. I guess, but like someone like me who can just kind of spend some time at the office going through Twitter and like tracking the transfers and stuff, you know, I just want to give people a place to just kind of read up about their team and, you know, enjoy some interviews. I like to talk to some of the players. I got two that's just been sitting on that. I got a release. So, but I really appreciate the fact that you like it. Yeah. I, I, the one of them that really stuck out in my mind was how you did a breakdown on all the transfers going in and out. I thought that was very well done and just, uh, like I said, great job. Thank you. I mean, that's one where, you know, I'm blessed to have a, a good job that lets me work from home and, you know, doesn't really get on my case if I'm, you know, I don't have like a micromanager. So I definitely spend a lot of time crushing Twitter and searching up all the buzzwords. And yeah, that transfer portal blog has definitely been like my Mona Lisa in terms of the amount of work I've put in. And, and I also think it's, it's just further giving me more hope for this season is, again, no disrespect to those kids, but you kind of just continue to weed out people who don't want to buy into the vision and, mm-hmm. and maybe just aren't cutting it. And then you bring in guys who, you know, didn't have to come here and they chose to leave their school and find a new home. And hopefully Leftwich just got the culture that these kids are just drawn to. Absolutely. Well, that's going to conclude this episode. And again, thanks Mitch for coming on with me today. Bobby, I really appreciate you letting me just run my mouth about Paul and Gertie for, you know, however long, just letting me ramble about my team. And I just love your podcast. I've been loving the interviews and just keep up the great work. I appreciate that. Thank you. And to all my listeners, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, 
daily, weekly, following me on Twitter at TNT College Foot One. Mitch, where can they follow you? They can follow me at BG Football Talk on Twitter. I highly recommend it, guys. He does a great job. Uh, like I said, his blog is great. I love looking at that. I love learning about new teams. Bowling Green isn't a team that I know a ton about. Uh, so living in Matt country, I know just a little, I know the basics, but just doing deep dives into every team. I'd like to say I've learned a little bit more, but I love the insight that you brought into the show today. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it as always. And then again, thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Have a good night. God bless.